Hey everyone, welcome to this week's Going in Circles, Big Monday show. Due to unforeseen issues, Mr. Spears will not be with us tonight as he has some uh, auto issues that he must deal with and the timing is unfortunate, but everything is cool, he's fine, his family's fine, uh, it's just uh, something he has to take care of at this time. And we're going to have a special guest with us tonight. Uh, we're going to turn back the clock and bring Eric Smith in. Eric uh, was assistant for Neil Howard back in the 90s and in Neil's heyday when they had a, a lot of really, really good horses. Uh, we're going to talk about those days of, of past. We'll talk about uh, some of the stories from the backside and how Eric got involved and and uh, talk about Neil and uh, just a lot of different things about that era, kind of comparing it to what we we have now and how things have changed and a little bit different from a different point of view than you usually hear. Uh, I also, on a somber note, want to uh, send my condolences to the, the family and friends of uh, J.J. Gracie, who passed away uh, from a, a relatively brief battle with, with cancer. Um, J.J. was a friend of mine for... Uh, better part of a decade and he um he was uh, a good guy he was outspoken and he was willing to call uh call people out when they they deserved it and I, I respected that about him he was a good trainer for a long long time in uh, the mid-atlantic uh as a matter of fact um the last years i spent training he uh I loaned him a stall in my barn, and he had a horse that was um, on the end, um, and uh, turned out to be do pretty good with that horse. He uh, he never forgot, but um, unfortunately he passed away, and I uh, feel bad for his his wife Sam and and his uh, his daughter and um, and everyone that uh, that knew him over the years. He was a, a true. Uh, a true racetrack guy. So anyways, we'll be back here in uh, just a minute and 25 seconds, and we're going to talk to Eric about uh, about the good old days, and uh, I hope you enjoy. See you back in a second. Pleasant Acre Farms is a full-service breeding operation located in Morriston, Florida, just outside of Ocala. If you want to get involved in the breeding business in the Sunshine State, or you're already involved, Pleasant Acre Farms is really the only place you need to know. Joe and Helen Barbazon, who are just great people, do a fantastic job taking care of your mare. Uh, they have a solid roster of 13 stallions with a really diverse group of pedigrees. Your mare will find a match at Pleasant Acre Farms. Currently, the star of Pleasant Acre Farm Stallion roster is Neolithic, who is by far a runaway winner of the Freshman Stallion of the Year here in the state of Florida. His son, Make It Big, just made it three for three, winning the $400,000 Springboard Mile at Remington Park, earning 10 points towards the Kentucky Derby in the process. Pleasant Acre Farms is your one-stop shop for breeding in the state of Florida. Check them out at www.pleasantacrestallions.com or on Twitter at P-A-S Stallions. You can also give them a call at 
2885 Pleasant Acre Stallions. Check them out. Eric, can you hear me? Can't, Chuck. How's it doing? How's it going, man? Everyone, this is Eric Smith. I, I met Eric. Uh, we we hate to probably admit how long ago it was, but uh, in the nineties, when when uh, we were both assistant trainers, I was with Alan Jerkins, and he was with Neil Howard. Um, how you been? Not bad, Chuck. It's, a, it's an honor, pleasure. Glad to be on here, making it. Well, Barry had some uh, issues crop up tonight that that happened in life. Uh, everything's okay. He's he and his family are fine. It's just uh, <laughs> I'm sure he'll tell the story next week. But he had uh, uh, something cropped up that that has to be dealt with uh, tonight. So. Uh, so we went to the bullpen and, and we got Eric. We've been meaning to have Eric on for a long time because uh, he's a, a veteran of the of the '90s uh, and before and after, and uh, you know, a guy that I, I always respected his, his his views, his opinions, and uh, you know, tell people about your background. Well, first, I hope I don't take the show back. It's it, trying to replace Barry is impossible, but. I do appreciate the chance to come on, but I, uh, I like, you know, most people that got in the game, my dad used to gamble on horses, he used to love the game, whether it was standard bread or thoroughbred. We lived in Louisville, Kentucky. So it was Louisville Downs was the standard bread track and obviously Churchill. And that really what kind of introduced me to, to the sport as a kid. And uh, I, I was actually more interested uh, what happened on the other side of the fence, these people that were handling the horses. And that's what really initially kind of piqued my interest. Went to the University of Kentucky. I was lucky enough. My dad sent me there and was lucky enough to get in there. And I was going to be uh, a pre-vet and study animal sciences. And a couple of years, I realized I wasn't smart enough to be a vet. So I graduated in four years with animal science degree and decided, you know, let's let's get into this thoroughbred industry that I've, you know, that my dad piqued my interest. And I think I answered an ad to Longfield Farm in Goshen, Kentucky, Dr. Gary Lavin's place and mm -hmm. started working there immediately after college, literally graduated. And I think within a week I was on the farm. And um Back then, he had a lot of the Loblolly horses. I can't remember the mayor of Demons Begone, but she was there. They were they were in their heyday there, and I worked in the layup barn. And really enjoyed it all summer. And then most people know about farm life. After the sales, things just get real slow, and you go to fixing a lot of posts on the farm. And I decided, man, how do I get on the racetrack? And Miss Dr. Lavin, really nice, said, look, I'm going to introduce you to Neil Howard. So on a very, very cold, nasty fall morning at Churchill, I met Neil. And from there, um, went to work for him, started down in Camden, South Carolina uh, back in 1989. Yeah, people forget. It's funny that uh, how some trainers, guys like Neil Howard, who who was a really top trainer, um, had, had good horses every year. And was a factor in, in all the big races, including uh, the classics. And uh, he, he was particularly good with Phillies. Who won, remember, you guys won a lot of Philly big races yep. when, when you were there. And how, how 
he just kind of fell out of favor. And uh, you look at some of the trainers from that era, Nick Zito, um, you know, stands out. Uh, it's a guy that in the 90s was literally in the Derby every year. Uh, yep. Neil is another one. Um, Neil Drysdale is another one. Uh, e- even Alan Jerkins at the end, you know, the last know, dozen, 10 years, eight years he trained, he didn't have much for horses anymore. Um, and it's a phenomenon that, uh, I mean, you look at the recent resurgence of, of Wayne Lucas until, uh, you know, he riding the pony fell off the other day, but, um, you know, he, he had been, it'd been a while since he was really, um, able to compete at the highest levels with horses. And, uh, you know, he had a little resurgence this, this past summer and, and with the, the Philly, the Philly, the one, the Oaks, but, um, I think it's 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 a, a strange phenomenon how so many really great horsemen suddenly found their barns devoid of talent. Yeah, it's it's and these guys didn't forget how to train horses. You don't go your whole life, you don't reach the pinnacle of of racing, winning classic races and then one day wake up and forget how to train a horse. Yeah, it's uh you know, it, it's it's troubling in, in some ways, and, and uh, it seems like the only thing as an aged person in this country that you're allowed to do is is be a politician and, and run things. Um, you know, if you're you're 80 and you're a politician, nobody has any trouble uh, voting for you. But if you're uh, 65 or 70 and a horse trainer, all of a sudden it, it seems like people uh, are biased against you, and, and they they won't send the horses anymore and it's, it's yeah. too bad. But, um, you know, talk about the days that you guys, uh, about, you know, the good horses, just, just name off some of the good horses, your favorites of that era, because there's a lot of people, um, that listen that, that are, you know, have, have similar backgrounds as us, uh, yep. um, similar ages as us. So their recollections of, uh, might, uh, you know, might, might be interested in, in hearing some of the good horses you work with. Yeah. And, and what was, a little unusual with Neil and, and working for Lane's Inn at, at the time when I started and up until I left, you know, Lane's Inn makes their money on sales. So, and that's why I know how you feel about, you know, Alan Jerkins as a mentor and Neil, obviously I worked for him from 1988 to 1999, huge influence on me, but we really were, or, or and you said you mentioned it with the Phillies. We were really all about getting Phillies and 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 getting them stakes placed, and um, if you could win stakes or you know the black type. So when you get when you get to the sales and you see that on the page, that's what you know really makes um, you know a sales outfit, which was Lanes in. So. You know, initially we 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 got great breeding, but these were horses that didn't go through the sales ring. They couldn't. They had they they weren't they were crooked or there was something wrong with them. So that's you know that's a little unique back then um, to have a trainer that that's what his whole goal was. Um, initially, we didn't get all the fantastic horses, and um, even the horses that did not go through the sales ring that we did really really well with, um, but. I, I, a little bit unique back then because a lot of times we, we got a Philly uh, out of weekend surprise, which is the mayor to AP Indy, not only a penny, but, but others, other great ones. 
And if a filly we realized couldn't win, we, we didn't race her. She was better off being an unraced mare. So that was a lot of the stuff that, you know, back then that we dealt with, but we did start getting better horses. We did get horses, even though they couldn't get the through through the sales ring. Um, Phillies like run up the colors, run up the colors, beat a Gina, which is Billmont's Philly um, in the Alabama. She was a fantastic mare. She didn't have a long race career, um, but she was a fantastic uh, mare um, out of up the flagpole, which is a, a, a mare at, at Lane's Inn that was just the classic, classic, everything she threw was a runner. But so that was a real highlight. You know, when you talk about classics, um, as, as we were getting horses from Lane's Inn, it wasn't too long. We got we got a horse from Dogwood, um, a horse straight out of uh, Aiken, South Carolina, not Camden, named Summer Squall. And that was highly unusual. We're at Keeneland, and this horse comes in from Aiken, and I don't know anything about it. Within two weeks, we enter it. And Randy Romero rode it, and four furlongs, one by 14 lengths, never moved. So that was a, a fun ride. Summer Squall got beaten the Derby by unbridled, won the Preakness, didn't run in the Belmont due to no, no Lasix. So that that was that was one of the top horses I was around. You know, we were talking about him last week uh, when we were bringing up horses that that start at Keeneland as a two year old that go on to greater glory, um, and he was one of the ones that. I recalled had had made a you know splashy debut at Keeneland as a two year old in, in the spring and and wound up being a you know a triple crown horse the next year. Um, there just isn't that many other ones. Um, like I said, uh, n- no one like texted me or emailed me and said, "Oh, you forgot about this one or forgot about that one." So I- I'm guessing that there probably aren't a whole lot of them. Yeah, I mean, it, well, you go back and watch horse racing. Anybody that loves the game, you go watch the hopeful that Summer Squall won. At Saratoga, there was no room. Pat Day jumped over horses. The horse just climbed over horses. He wasn't going to be denied. I think it was a 15-minute inquiry, and they left him up. Um, it was the hoo-hoo of horses and trainers in that race. He came out of that race and uh, had a slight injury. We stopped on him. He had won all the races up until then, and somehow Rhythm wins the Breeders' Cup two-year-old juvenile is named juvenile champion which I still is a mystery to me, but he was, he, he was a phenomenal horse. Yeah. Yeah. He really was. Um, you know, you mentioned Lasix and uh, I think people who got into the business or, or, you know, started following racing within the last 10 or 15 years had no idea that there was a time when the triple crown races were run under different, um, vastly different medication rules yeah uh, with new york being the last holdout to not use lasix um and that you know your horse uh ali sheba uh losing the bonus because at that time they had that triple crown the visa triple crown bonus yep. because of uh what happened with spendabuck spendabuck won the derby and skipped the preakness because he was given an opportunity to, to win, I think, a $2 million bonus if you won the uh, Jersey Derby instead of the, the Preakness. Because he won the two prior races at Garden State, which was a, a new thing. And the guy, Robert Brennan, who bought the track, was throwing money around. Of course, it was all money he stole. 
<laughs> but um, uh, in response to that, the next year, the the Triple Crown added a bonus schedule. And Ali Sheba won the first two legs of the Triple Crown. And Bet Twice ran second in those two legs, the, the yep. Derby and the Preakness. And I remember in the, in the Belmont, Bet Twice won easy. And Ali Sheba finished fourth. And because of the way the Triple Crown point system was set up, Bet Twice, um, and Ali Sheba was a horse who, who would, was a, a confirmed bleeder. Uh, yeah, and you, you know what's funny? Um, Sidetrack talk about Alishiba. I had talked about Tay uh, in an interview maybe two years ago, and he had mentioned he was the regular rider for Alishiba that spring. Right. And he opted off of him to ride Demons Begone, who was the favorite for the Derby off of a, like a, just a spectacular Arkansas yep. Derby win. And then he pulled up down the backside because he bled so bad That's it. That, that it was going everywhere. And it, it's funny how the the Lasix bleeding, um, you know, kind of that that line um, from from Demons Be Gone to Ali Sheba because Ali Sheba was a horse that was also he had had breathing problems and, and was a bleeder. And um, that twice wound up winning the bonus that year, despite losing the triple crown two other races and after that uh there was there was really more of a push to add new york you know for uniformity and it's funny because uniformity is, is suddenly a key word in this business and uh, uh we've been missing that for a long time yeah. in the good old days we didn't have that either so exactly it, it was it was every like you said every racetrack was different every then you had different different rules and regulations. Do you remember what we had to do in Florida in particular to get a horse on Lasix in that era? I, I, I remember Summer Squall was in Florida initially. I, I was still in Camden, but I, I worked many years in Florida, and I don't remember. We, remember. we used to have to bring the horse. You would bring your horse. Back to the barn after your race, your vet would scope it. And if it would bled, you had to go back to the, the test barn Ugh. and re-scope it and show the state vet. I don't remember that. Yeah, the state vet. Yeah, that, that, that's uh, great for the horse. That's real convenient. Right. So a horse that bled has to go back to his barn, be scoped, and then walk back to the receiving or the, the test barn, which, depending on what barn you were stabled at, might be a half mile away uh, and then be re-scoped <laughs> and and that's one of the reasons that finally uh the officials and, and horsemen groups got together and said listen this is nuts like the horse has been stressed out enough where he's bled why are we scoping him twice and yeah. why are are we having to to walk the horse you know all over the racetrack and not you know, treat them properly. That's that's not that's really not the way you're supposed to handle horses in that situation. Um, and that's when they started to let the private vets sign off on Lasix on, on bleeding, and and pretty much then everyone wound up using it. Um, and I know there's a lot of people that have strong feelings about it, which which I you know I I was always a little bit perplexed as to why people had such strong feelings against Lasix because 
I mean, I've worked around, we, we've worked around how many horses, good horses, top horses. And I never saw, I, I saw Lasix help horses that bled, but I never saw where it gave anyone an unfair advantage. No. no. And it just, it just seemed to be like overblown because it was something that people knew about, um, you know, versus all the other things that, that could have, you know, could have been done or not done, but. Uh... Yeah. I mean, you know, when you're on the racetrack so long, th- those are the people that know. And, you know, I, there's way more people that were on the racetrack longer than me, 10, 11 years. And I think if you interviewed every single one of them, what are the negative effects of Lasix? What are the positive effects of Lasix? Case closed. Yeah. Yeah. It, it always seemed like things were, were overblown. And, and when people say, well, sometimes they still bleed through Lasix. It's like, yeah. I don't know any medication that's perfect that, that that's a hundred percent. And if you, you take it, well, you're cured. Um, but it, it's, it's amazing to me that here we are in 2020, almost 2023. And we're still having far too much time and energy uh, wasted talking about it. And I mean, this should have been a compromise and we've talked, I'm sure if you listen to the show, we've talked about this so many times before. Oh, yeah. Just, all right, you don't want two-year-olds to have it, and you don't want greatest takes to have it, fine. Okay, no problem. That's fine. But that's it. Those are the, the, the races that don't have it. And everyone else has it. And stop trying to, to get rid of it. Because the economy of, of the game, the economic factor of Lasix, of, the, of taking Lasix away, is so much... Um, more negative than anyone is willing to admit and it just uh you know i've said this i've written this economics are going to destroy this business far before any animal rights groups oh 100 percent 110 percent you know economics that's that's from within um you know people give up People give up. They give up. They said, this is too expensive. I can't do it. We were talking uh, in a thread about one of the difficulties of, of, of racing horses in California. And oh, a big problem. And these are problems that, that are you know not really talked about much. But it's hard to have a, a full week's card of racing without having horses on the lower levels. You need cheap horses to fill race cards. You can't just have all good horses. And it's just so expensive to train in Southern California that it's going to be four or five or $6,000 a month. And it's hard to justify spending five or $6,000 a month to train a horse that might be worth 10 or 12. Yeah. And that that's one of the things that just is, um, you know, we look back at, at the, you know, the old times, I mean, Gulfstream was a six day a week track back then. We were running, um, Wednesdays through Mondays. Tuesday was the only dark day. It, it was Tuesday was the dark day. I mean, I, it would always freak me out of Keeneland. You'd ship into Keeneland and I'm going to forget the holiday. Is it Easter? And you'd be like, hold on, we're not racing. There's a, there's a dark day. Well, it's not Tuesday. Yeah. I mean, it's racing six days a week. Um, it, it's just, there was no, sh- I mean, 
I don't, again, this may be getting to the weeds, but you would try to enter a horse and you'd have to get a star and you'd have to get two stars before they actually could get in a race. I mean, there was, you know, I hope I'm not talking Chinese, to, to, but, you know, that's how you entered a horse, go to the race in secretary of office and, and you were worried you'd know one. I can't imagine anybody gets excluded these days into a race. <laughs> no. Unless they don't fit the conditions, which would be obvious. You, you wouldn't think often. Uh, I remember that if you got in a turf race at, at a lot of the tracks uh, in the south, especially Gulfstream or, or Fairgrounds, you didn't scratch if it came off because you would lose your, your yeah. eligibility yeah. date. No. You would never get back in the rest of the meet. Never. Uh, it was, I, I recall when I was working for Tommy Skiffington and we had lots of turf horses and this is before turf racing was as widespread as it is now, which is kind of a, you know, you can, you can kind of like chuckle when you say that being that Churchill doesn't have turf and fairgrounds that doesn't have turf and uh, New York shut their turf down and Goldstream all summer had no turf and turf paradise has no turf. Um, uh, and the best great grass horse in America is probably Arlington and they have no more races. But um, but I remember when when you'd get a, a turf maiden at Goldstream in the winter time, and there'd be like forty horses entered for ten spots. Yep, it was it, it was a uh, it was a different time, and and people like turf racing. I mean, turf racing is it just the, the fields don't get spread out, and and it just seems like um, more horses have a have a opportunity to win the race. Maybe that's just, you know, maybe it's not even supported by statistics, but it just seems as though turf racing is, is a little more competitive. And um, I think it's really been a, a, a telling thing how much we missed it when a track like Churchill, like literally had, you know, I don't know, 15 turf races the entire year. And, and that's after last year having, having none in, in the fall. Yeah. And, that's what people want. That's what people like. And usually it's full fields, you know, beyond the racetrack or two that runs like six horses on the turf. But, and, you know, talk about economics, you know, you keep putting a bad product out there and people will go away. You know, I mean, there's sports I don't watch as much because it's a bad product and horse racing is no different. And so when you take Churchill and you only, you know, you don't run on the turf and it's, it's not good. Yeah, I, n- I never thought that growing grass would become an issue, but especially Churchill Downs, which is in Kentucky, which is bluegrass, correct? <laughs> you think all you got to do is water it, right? Like grass grows everywhere there. <laughs> Again, my ten years on the racetrack wasn't any different. I don't remember any issue with Churchill's turf in the ten years I worked on the racetrack. No, uh, it wasn't. Uh... They didn't use it nearly as much as they do now, but uh, yeah, the Gulf Streams track, you know, that turf course would get chewed up. I guess still does a little bit. Um, you know, the New Orleans, the the fairgrounds turf gets chewed up a little bit, but you know, it's at the end of the meet. Remember, they used to put that that cat litter stuff on the fairgrounds turf course when it rained. Ugh. They put that this stuff on it. It looked like cat litter. It was supposed to absorb the water, um, but. It, it, I don't know. They put too much on, or what? But it, it would just sit out there, so your horses would come back, and and they they get these things in their eyes, and they get welts on their face. And oh yeah, 
it was, oh, I was like, man, stop using that cat litter stuff, man. Just, just take the race off the turf. Don't make me knock an eye out. But, but, um, no, things have changed a lot. And I mean, you know, like life goes on and racing is still a great game. It's, it's just, uh, the issues have started to pile up to the point where, um, I mean, they're, they're creating issues, uh, I bet you didn't know that uh, four millimeter toe grabs were were ideal, did you? Uh, no. <laughs> well, that's the blacksmith. I said, "What's the difference between a six millimeter toe and a four millimeter toe?" And he said, "I have no idea." I said, "What do you mean?" He goes, "There's no such thing as a four millimeter toe." <laughs> uh, again, back in those days when we were on the racetrack, I mean, you'd see these horses walk over, and I go, "They got high heels on." What? Why is that horse walking so weird? They used to use quarter horse toes which were i mean god i i don't even know how to measure it but probably the 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 width of of, of a normal person's pinky i remember those things they were like high heels and then the turn downs so you'd have the turn downs where the the yeah, end I of the shoe it. would be yeah, there were trainers that kept blacksmiths busy. We didn't change a lot. You know, we, we did a, just a slight, but I mean, there were some trainers that meant the blacksmith. I mean, it, the, the track was off or it was soft or whatever, man, here comes, you know, here comes the blacksmith. Yeah. We, um, when I worked for Tommy Skiffington, we used to use uh, stickers behind a lot on the turf. Um, and then they banned those. Um, remember block heels horses used to use block heels, especially horses that had hind issues. Uh, they then they stopped doing that. And uh, Jerkins used mud cocks a lot, uh, not on the turf, of course, but um, on the dirt we used mud cocks a lot. I, I won the West Point handicap in I think two thousand maybe, and it was a turf race, and I had a horse named Saratoga Sunrise who was really a dirt horse, but then. There wasn't much for dirt horses, for older dirt horses in New York Red Program at that time. And the West Point was kind of the next logical race because we won a race out in Finger Lakes, the Genesee Valley. And it was one of those Saratoga days where the clouds rolled in and it just got like super dark. Yeah. And I, I remember, remember Bernie, the, the blacksmith? Oh, yeah. Bernie, I had to bribe Bernie with like a case of beer and stay at the barn not the not the drink the beer before he shot the horse but if they took the race off because i had turf shoes on the horse you know flat shoes and if they took the race off i wanted to put on mud cocks so they waited till the last minute and finally about 40 minutes before the race before the it, it was about 10 minutes to post to the prior race they finally called from the racing office because it had been drizzling. They said, we're taking it off. And he put on mud. He put four shoes on a horse faster than I ever saw anyone put shoes on a horse. And he usually took about 30 minutes to, to shoot a horse. He shot this horse in about nine minutes. Wow. And uh, we went out there and we were the only horse, I believe, with mud cocks on um, in the mud. And, uh, and he won. So that was, that was my first, I think that was my first Saratoga stake race. I, uh, when, you know, people don't necessarily think of Saratoga and bad storms. You, know, you think of Midwest. I'm telling you, when a storm rolls into Saratoga, you better get tied on. Uh, me and John Yeson were there for when Birdstone won. 
and and I mean it was lightning as they basically yeah. Uh, I mean, it was a horrible storm. Remember that? It was, it was like the natural, a storm in the natural with the lightning coming yeah. in. And, and they were kind of like, you know, rushing to get it to race. <laughs> Couldn't get it off quick enough. It just came. Um, we took our buddies up. Uh, you know, once I left the racetrack, I, I started working for another company. We would go up every summer. And so we would fly in and rush up and try to catch the first or second race whenever we could get there on a Wednesday or Thursday and uh, we were all in the car and storms started kind of popping up. You could tell it started getting dark, you know, we're going over, uh, you know, we're about 30 minutes away. And uh, one of our buddies goes, they're not going to cancel the races. And we're like, no, it's, we've never, they never cancel the races. You know, it's, you know, we've worked on the racetrack forever. We've, you know, passed working on the racetrack. We've never seen a race cancel. I guess it rained so bad. It washed out. Yeah. In the uh, far turn, and they canceled the races. And the guy, you know, our buddy Rob Carcetti looks up at us and he goes, Thought y'all said they weren't going to cancel the races. I said, Well, we can go to Del Mar's running right now here in about a half hour. Let's go bet on Del Mar. Yeah, that's it's so true what you say about the races. Um, we were talking the other day with a group of people, and they said, Well, when do you cancel races? And, you know, did I cancel for bad weather? I said, In the old days. If the roads were open, they raced. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if it was a blizzard and and they closed off the streets, all right, you know, they canceled. But like, there was no closing for wind or cold temperatures or or storms. I mean, we raced, right? And it was, and and you got to remember that was when we were going six days a week uh, at most of the major tracks. So it wasn't as though they didn't have many opportunities. I mean. It just was, it was just what we did. And, um, you know, nowadays they're a lot more careful about, uh, about, you know, canceling races and jocks saying the, the racetracks, the tour, you know, is dangerous and canceling. Yeah. It's, uh, it's, a, it's just a different world. I mean, we, we certainly live in a different world than we did. I was looking at, I was going through YouTube one night and I don't remember what I was even looking for, or what race or what course, but I wound up finding, um, I think it was, it was the year, the Breeders' Cup, maybe 1988 or 80, now 89 was, was Easy Go or Sunday Silence, so it must have been 88, I don't know, it doesn't really make a difference, but Chris McCarron had gotten hurt, um, the week leading up to the Breeders' Cup in a spill, the horse broke down on the backside, and, uh, it's on YouTube, I can't remember what the heading even was, but they showed it on the Breeders' Cup telecast three different ways of the horse breaking down in the race. Wow. <laughs> the, the McCarran got, a, you know, his leg broken. And, and I'm thinking to myself, they block out video replays now of, of horses yep. that broke down on the backside. This was like the, the, the head-on shot uh, as the horse went into the far turn from you know a, a totally non-breeders cup related race yeah it wasn't it was just like i was thinking to myself the mentality that just the way that people thought about things was so much different then than it is now um and that's i think something that a lot of the old timers had a hard time adjusting to on the backside because uh, you still hear it now um i i know a, a, a an executive a racetrack executive that was very much against 
avoided claiming rules. Yeah. His feeling was, well, you know, you, 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 when you put your slip in, you know, you take your chances, but yeah, but that's not how, you know, that's how things work these days. And we need deterrence. Um, I think a lot more horses broke down in the old days than we remembered because yeah. I don't think we were conditioned then. I think we were, we were on the backside, especially we were more conditioned to be like, well, that sucks. Feel bad for the people, the connection, Feel bad for the horse, but Hey, you know, we, we got to race again tomorrow because yeah. we race so much. Um, where now the whole uh, mentality is, is so much different and uh, it's, it's understandable. I mean, we all get it. I'm not, I'm not bitching about it. I'm just saying it. it's just a different world we live in. And uh, yeah, and, and I think Chuck, you're hitting it right. When when you're when you're living through it, and again, like you said, six days a week, and you know, it's one of the things that that really taught me on the racetrack. Not only Neil taught me, but the racetrack itself taught me is you never get too high, you never get too low. You win the graded stakes, the next day a horse breaks down. But so I don't remember a lot of horses breaking down, but I think you know, kind of as you explain it, you know, they probably did, but you, you move on. I mean, there's, when you're, when you're living it, there's, you, there's other stuff. There's racing the next day. You got your own horses, you know, you feel bad for the person, the horse, but you got, you move on. You know, and it's funny that the, the sentiments have changed towards animals, but towards people, I think people are, um, and not to turn this into like a, like a social uh, podcast, but I, I think people are far less. Um, what's the word? I think there's there's far less empathy out there for for others in when you're talking about humans. Where I think animals, on the other hand, there's far more empathy for it. Yeah, and it's a strange phenomenon that people would care less about other people but more about animals and you know i I get caring about animals of course we all care about animals and and that's i think one of the really um shitty stereotypes exists is that trainers and people on the backside don't care about their horses because the there's nothing and and obviously there's always going to be exceptions to the rule there's always going to be pricks i mean no matter what business you're in there's always going to be that jerk who you know who doesn't care and uh, i just think that you know we get a bad rap sometimes well you know know, especially if you love the game and and again you're working you know people forget the people that work with these horses yeah racing only happens three days a week back and we're talking about six days a week, but it, it truly is. And everybody says, Oh, it's, it, it really is 365 days a year. It's 24 hours a day. It's seven days a week. Okay. It's not 24 hours a day, but most people are working 12, 14 hours. I know there's labor stuff now that they, you know, you get a day off, but you're so invested into taking care of the animals. You love the game. Why else would you not make a lot of money and work extremely hard? And, and so, it really does hurt when, you know, you, you watch a broadcast or you see something and, and it comes across as, well, those people, they don't care anything about the horses. It's so far from the truth. There's, there's nothing worse than uh, the empty stall the day after something happens. 
um, you know, you, you walk by and you're used to seeing that horse stick his head out. And, and uh, you know, the next day you walk by and the straws all turn back and, you know, it just, uh, it was never, it's never been easy. I mean, it, it, uh, it sucks. But and any of these horses have personalities, you know, it's, you're not just connected to them because you're around them. That's a big part, but they have personalities and, and those are the things when it happens to you, you, you don't move the, on the next day. Yeah. You're busy. You're doing stuff, but it, that's, it sticks with you when you lose a horse, whether it's from sickness or breakdown, it's, it, it's tough. Yeah. No, it's true. But, um, yeah, I was like thinking some of the, some of the other horses, you know, we, we had a lot, but you know, there's a quote from the office and I'm going to get this horribly wrong, but it's something like, you know, I wish I knew I was in the good old days when I was in the good old days. And it really felt, and as I reflect back, I felt like I was in the good old days. You know, when you, when you think about triple crown chances being thwarted, whether it was silver charm or I was at Belmont and real, real quiet, opened up five links, six links, looked like he was an easy winner and victory gallop. Barely nails him. I couldn't even tell. I was. I watched it live. I, I did not know when they hit the wire who won. But you know, you think about cigar. You think about you know. I I texted you about you know skip away. Um, there there were just so many great horses back then, and not that there aren't today, but obviously we got to see them a lot more. They raced more. You know, to this day, my, one of my favorite travers is Holy Bull beating Concern. You know, Darkin gives a great call. It's a great story. Lucas has Comanche tra uh, trail in there as a as a rabbit. Uh, you know, Holy Bull's got this you know un you know unbridled speed and quickness. Comanche trails out there to to run it. You know, run him into the ground. Doesn't even affect Holy Bull. Tabasco Cat's backing up, and here comes Concern. And again, just a great Travers. There were just so many races back then. You can use YouTube, and it's just they're amazing. It was uh, iron. It's ironic you brought that horse up because I was talking to a, an official at Naira this year, Travers Week, and I said, you know, you guys probably shouldn't play the Holy Bull replay. I he, the he, sticking that Mike they, Smith did in the last said, why? <laughs> because I somebody tried to retroactively <laughs> suspend Mike Smith and. Poor Jimmy Kroll would have had his money taken away because he yeah, I, I have Mike months. Smith stuck him six or seven times in a row without even wailing. I mean, it, it was amazing. You know, the interesting thing about that was that you know he kind of slipped away from him at the top of the stretch, and Mike waits till the very last, like the last sixteenth. I think he he hits the horse once, like at the at, at the the three sixteenths. And then he just hand rides him until concern comes to him. And as soon as concern gets like a half length behind, that's when he goes to the, you know, the stick. And, and he was just kind of like, uh, man, he, he must have hit him 10 times in, in like rapid succession. And, um, you know, Holy Bull just, he wasn't letting him go by. Man. He just wasn't letting him go by. Um, we were at Saratoga at the, kind of group of guys I told you would go up there almost every summer once I left the track and I think it was 2008 and we would always pick one of the weekends that you know even though it's busy every weekend but we would try not to pick the Travers weekend yeah 
And so we were up there the week before and Neil had a horse named Mambo in Seattle. And we spent the weekend and he was working them that, I think the day we left. So we stuck around and Robbie was going to work them. And it's one of those as we're watching it and everybody's been there as a trainer, but didn't quite like there's a horse breaking off in front of not exactly what you wanted, you know, a, a, a big, a big three quarter work before the Travers, even though there's a whole week to, but this horse works like you I've never seen. I mean, he literally just draws this horse and dusts him about eight, the, you know, 16th pole and goes on and works another three quarters, not another three quarters, but works out. I think he broke off at the five eighths pole, worked another quarter to make it three quarters. I think he went like in 10 and change. Neil never works horses fast, does it within himself. And so me and our buddies, we're chomping at the bit. We're going to go home. We're, we're all week, all we just text each other, man, I can't wait for Saturday, Travers. Can't wait for Saturday, Travers. Can't wait for it. Got a buddy in Chicago who's going to go to the OTB. I think John Yeson's going to go to River Downs. I'm on my computer. The guy in Denver's on his computer, and we're just ready to roll. I think he goes off five or six to one. Maybe he got bet down to nine to two. But if you've never watched the 2008 Travers, please do. Yeah, he's, that was that was. He's last going all the way around except for one horse, so he's basically second to last. They don't go very fast. Detara, who had won the Belmont, goes twenty three and change, forty eight, very slow, three quarters of one twelve. Colonel John was sitting kind of fourth. Was they turn for come out of the turn into the stretch? The first six horses from the rail out just bump each other. It, it kind of looks like Colonel John does it, but it, they just all pinball each other except for Colonel John kind of doesn't affect him. He bumps, but he stays, he kind of stays the course. Well, Mambo in Seattle had worked his way up the seventh on the outside, huge momentum, collars Colonel John about the 16th pole, and they both ding-dong it to the wire and maybe probably past the 16th pole. But they hit the wire, and it looks like Mambo Seattle has got all the momentum. I, I just watched it before I got on here. I, I, I know when they hit the wire, who wins the race 99 out of 100 times, mm -hmm. who won the race. Robbie pumps his fist. Even Durkin, after he calls it a photo, says Robbie pumped his fist. I'm, we're calling on each other. We got it. This is unbelievable. Loaded up on the horse. And uh, the probably already know the story. Colonel John won. Yeah. beat Mambo in Seattle in a very, very tough photo. Yeah, yeah. And, and that was kind of like the highlight of his career. <laughs> yeah. Like, he never really got back to that form. He was a full brother to uh, King Mambo, Mambo in Seattle. Um, yeah. And he just passed away this summer, believe it or not. He was standing in New Zealand. Wow. Um, of all places, but... Um, yeah, and a huge field, probably not the best Travers field <laughs> assembled. You know, Televacati, uh, Detara, Colonel John, but an amazingly horribly bad beat. It's amazing that the Televacati has turned out really to be the best sire out of all of them. Yeah, which was what's not. It just goes to show you how how uh, random sometimes stallion success can be um talking about Tappet. someone put a picture today of a Tappet uh, gainsway 
advertisement um, the year Tappet's first foals were born, and he was standing for fifteen thousand bucks. <laughs> and uh, you know, I think I think last year he stood for one hundred eighty-five thousand. Um, and he just wasn't consider. You know, he was a good horse. I think he won the wood, but nobody would have said, "Well, he was in the the top of his no. his class." And I mean, into mischief has just had unbelievable success. And um, yeah, he keeps proving me wrong. We, we you know, I just never <laughs> thought um, into mischief would breed classic distance horses. I thought he would be limited, and that's how the game has changed. It it really is. I mean, these horses like they come from nowhere sometimes, and they become you know top stallions, and and the ones we think are going to be be great stallions don't hit for whatever reason and uh you know this year we have a real influx of new stallions and i don't know if um it just seems that way but there's just an amazing amount of new stallions for next year uh that have retired and maybe because um you know the the preakness winner is already retired was retired I think he was retired at the uh, the half mile pole. Yeah, the trappers when he started backing up. Um, but the Belmont winners retired. The, uh, the you know all the other horses. Jackie's Warriors retired. Golden Pals retired. Uh, vir- virtually everyone from the Breeders' Cup Classic, outside of uh, Rich Strike, is retired. Um, Cyberknife is going to be retired after his le- his next race. Yeah, and. It just seems uh, Olympiad, um, and you would think Olympiad this if, if he was to return would be a monster, the favorite for horse of the year. Yeah, um, and and I understand why they did it. I mean, um, he had a good year. He had a strong year. He, he certainly proved his his uh, his ability at, at the, the highest levels and. Ran was second in the Breeders' Cup Classic, but um, yeah, I think it, it's it's kind of a, a unique year, and it just seems like there's a a tremendous amount of, of horses going to stud. Um, and you know, it's it's unfortunate in, in a lot of ways, and uh, you know, I got a lot of heat for for saying that I, I just didn't see what the point of bringing Flightline back next year was going to be. And any horse that you know could remotely challenge him, and there didn't seem to be anybody left standing. But e- even the, the 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 second you know tier horses, everyone's retiring, everyone's gone. Yeah, I mean, you know, you need uh, if you're going to bring a flight line back, and, and for the public, for for you know, and you really need another horse that is. Again, Sunny sounds easy goer type thing, and there just isn't. I mean, it, it wouldn't. It would be nothing to watch Flightline race next year. It would, it would be a joke. Yeah, that, that was kind of my point. That I just think he's going to be one to nine in every race, and they're going to run him at level weights. And he's already won the Met Mile. He's already won the Breeders' Cup Classic. He won the Malibu, so he's already shown he could be a Grade One sprinter. Um, like. I just didn't see, and people say, well, I should try him on the turf. I mean, come on, it's just not going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> you know, like he's standing for 200,000. What if he wins on the turf? He's not going to stand for 250,000. He's already at the, about the highest you can 
you can uh, retire a horse at. I mean, he's at the highest level, and and you know, based on how, how often he ran this year, you know, he's not going to run enough. I mean, if they keep the same scenario, he's not going to run enough next year to to really make it interesting. No, that, that was the other point was that it's not going to be a you know nationwide tour where he runs every month somewhere. It's not going to happen either. He's going like I said, he's going to run three times. One of them is going to be in the Classic, which is at in California next year. So they're probably not going to want to stray too far away. Um, so may, maybe he'd run into Whitney. But who is out there turning four that you could say with a straight face, well, he might develop into a horse that could run 125 higher. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Nobody. I mean, Taiba's a nice horse, but, you know, and, and, and as a four-year-old, Taiba should be a better horse than he's a three-year-old. But he would have to improve a lot to even get in the same uh, area code. And and that was really my, my thing, was we don't have handicap racing anymore. Um, I mean, we have a couple, but even those, they're not really handicapped. Um, and I hate to and... knock Bob Baffert because it's just too easy, but um, it's not like he's known for having a bunch of older horses. So I'm not that he can't turn that horse into a, you know, a, a great older horse, but it's not like that's his forte. No. And, and I would say if you told me, all right, I want you to, um, to give me a horse that you think has the best chance of being horse of the year, um, 11 months from now or 12 months from now, I would say Tyba. I mean, to yeah. me, he's by far the best horse returning. We didn't have a great, group of older horses i mean there was some really good ones life is good obviously yeah we didn't know are they milers are they you know what's their distance we weren't sure about who they are but it it was a thin division yeah i mean when you look at the breeders cup classic and you had a couple three-year-olds in there what do you have three three three-year-olds in there and um you had life is good you had olympiad you had hot rod charlie and you had of course flight line the next tier down for older horses was that group that that consisted of um, Royal Ship and the horses that Flightline absolutely murdered in the Pacific Classic. I mean, I don't ever remember seeing a horse in a major United States older horse stake just destroy a field like that. And, I mean, those horses are not in his class. Yeah. And one of those horses... Won the one uh, and finished second in the Middle East and the, the, the twenty million dollar aces. Yeah, um, I, I just uh, I understand why people want to see horses like that, but I just thought the risk was just too great. And what if the horse got hurt in, in June? Then what? Then they missed the whole year. Uh, and I mean, it's just so expensive too. The insurance they, they were going to have to pay exorbitant <laughs> amounts of money, and it just made sense to not race them anymore yeah and and i like and, and irony is i got people telling me i got this one girl telling me i, I oh you you hate horse racing I'm like yeah i hate horse racing <laughs> <laughs> i spent five thousand minutes uh talking about it on this podcast every yeah. year and, and it's not like i got you know we got joe rogan money coming in here 
It's uh, if, if Barry didn't, I didn't have to pay Barry ten thousand a week. I, I, you, you, once once this is over, you have me on. I'm sorry, it's going to go downhill. You, <laughs> what's that Howard Stern, uh, the guy on there, jumped the shark? This show's jumped the shark today. <laughs> it jumped the shark. Oh man! But uh, another uh, when I was just thinking about horses, I'll bring another blast from the past. Lil's lad. Yeah. Him. So Murray, Larry Murray. Now, Murray Durst was the owner, so Poncho Martin had him, and then we we got him after the Champagne. I, I I thought he was undefeated. I had to go back and remember that he got beaten the Champagne, and I'm trying to figure out how this horse had so much speed, and was basically a, a fly. It was a, it was kind of a flight skill with him. He I mean he, it was just run as fast as he could for as long as he could. He really mentally was not a very mature horse. So it's kind of, you know, we talk about horses have that flight mentality of just going. That That's what he had. But we got him, went down to Florida. We win the Fountain of Youth, and we're running him back in the Florida Derby. Be a huge ordeal to win the grade one Florida Derby. Well, Sugar had corn on his quest. And for the people back then that remember, he was a nut. I think during or before the race in the tunnel, he threw Robbie Davis, was causing all kinds of ruckus. Mm-hmm. But anyway, they break from the gate. Lil's lad, as always, goes straight for the lead. Where Cornell's quest, I guess after all his antics, he had speed too. So they go 22 and two, a half and 46. Lil's lad up about a length and a half. It's 19 lengths back to the rest of the field. So if anybody wants to go watch that race, um, I believe it's 19, I forget what year it was. Florida. 1995. Yeah, it sounds right. That was, that was your Coronado's quest got loose in the pack. That's it. Yeah. He got loose and he ran through the middle and he was, he was tough, man. That horse was brutal. Well, <laughs> they make three quarters and Robbie Davis scrubs everything Coronado's Quest has, and he actually passes Jerry Bailey and Lil's Lad on the far turn and gets a little bit into the stretch, gets a little bit over on Lil's Lad, which makes Lil's Lad kind of cock his head a little bit. But when they get in the stretch, Lil's Lad fights back. First, one, Coronado's Quest is done. His antics in the paddock, and then he's basically just tried to just dog Lil's Lad the whole way. Well, I thought we're clear. But here comes Cape Town and Hallery Hunter. So we still have a lead, and here comes Cape Town, Shane Sellers, and they hit the wire together, but you can tell Lil's Lad wins by a head. So I'm pumped. And at that time, I'm in the middle of the crowd, don't know exactly what happened. And right away, inquiry sign goes up. I'm like, what the hell was that? I've never had a jock do this all 10 years on the racetrack. We've had plenty of inquiries when I was on the racetrack. Jerry, Jerry Bailey comes back jogging back and says, looks me in the face and says, we're coming down. Yeah. Needless to say, the head-on shows that he just got so tired, he just went out into Cape Town and he finishes second through DQ. Mm-mm. That was 1998, by the way. That's it. That's it. That was the year I uh, basically left the track or the next year. Yeah. 
Yeah. He goes to the bluegrass, Chuck, and I told you he's got so much speed. And we're like, if he ever could harness his speed, he'd be he'd be good. If he could get ever with a quarter of 20. So he runs in the bluegrass, and he gives the first quarter by himself, nobody dogging him, 23 and change. I think he goes a half, I'm going to say 47, 48. I'm like, we can't – there's nothing that can go any better than what's going now. Cape Town passes him mid-stretch like he's standing still. He just was done. He just he just could not harness the speed. Yeah, can you imagine that was a five horse bluegrass? Yep. A five horse bluegrass. Which which seems, you know, impossible these days. Yeah, he was never gonna be that no, was, he was he that never was really it. was right. He had some time off after that and and um he won an allowance race at Keeneland the following year. But never, you know, never really followed up uh, after that. Um, he but won yeah. easy. He won that allowance race really easy, too. He won by uh, six and a half. But but, listen, uh, it's cool to be around horses like Holy Bull that are big horses that have speed. He was a huge horse that had speed. Do you remember uh, the day Holy – were you still around the day Holy Bull broke down? I was, but I don't remember it. Yeah, because he was in – I was working for Skiffington at the time and uh he was in the barn next to us and i remember when they he came off the the van uh, because we we all were watching the race from the front side and we all like sprinted back to the back side and um he came off the van he had the boot on and the boot was new that was that, that was they had just developed those boots that they put on the horses after they get hurt to kind of stabilize them and he came limping off, and I was thinking, man, they're gonna put him down. Like, I can't believe it, you know, because that was the match. That was the matchup everybody had been waiting for for months was Cigar versus Holy Bull. Yeah, and he was he was loved. I mean, I remember on the racetrack, he everybody was a horse him. that was loved. Well, everybody rooted for Mister Kroll. I mean, it was his horse too. Yep. So it, it was you know a, a, a racetrack guy who owns and trains. The, best horse in the country. Um, and he didn't get the run in the Breeders' Cup because it would have cost him, I think, like 480000 to run in the race, which was nuts. And he won the Woodward, uh, and he destroyed every good horse in training that day. Um, and I, I remember watching that race from past the wire at Belmont, and Mike Smith was just screaming after the wire. Um, but... Um, yeah, we we didn't think he was going to make it. I mean, back then they didn't save as many horses as, as they do, you know, these days. Yeah. Um, and we uh, we were there till eight eight nine o'clock at night waiting, you know, to find out. And they finally said, "Yeah, we we think he's going to be, you know, they're going to." But he uh, he prognosis is pretty good. So, and he wound up, you know, being a pretty decent stallion. He, he never really replicated himself, but I mean, he was a solid stallion for a long time. Yeah. Well, cigar, you know, I was in Gulfstream the year that they switched his his streak started. So yeah. I think he had won of the dirt before he went to Gulfstream. He did. He 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 won two races on the dirt because I ran. I was working for Skiffington um, or Jerkins. I was working for Jerkins. Um, and he he won an allowance race on the dirt at Aqueduct, 
and uh, and Mike Smith wrote him, and he won easy. Uh, and Bill Mott runs him back in the in the Naira Mile, which is now the Cigar Mile. Now it's named after him. And Mike chose Devil Is Due over Cigar. And at the time, Devil Is Due was was a far more accomplished horse. Yep. And it was it, it seemed like it's an easy choice. Um, and that's when Jerry Bailey picked the mount up, and Cigar dusted them all in the uh, in Cigar Mile, not the Naira Mile. And his next race was at Gulfstream Park in January. And yeah, and it was an allowance race, right? It was, I've said this before, that the most remarkable race, that the, the, a race that we'll never see again, is a four other than going two turns on the dirt that's got a grade one winner. In it. We, we, we ran against him. We ran and, against and, them. We had a horse. We had a horse named Up in the Annie who had either won the hopeful or had finished second in the hopeful, and uh, or nowhere we gonna run in the hopeful and he got sick. But either way, we ran against him, and I believe we were second that race. And it was always remembered. It was our claim to fame, and we actually gave a pretty good run at it. I think we ended up getting beat two or three lengths to him. Mm-hmm. Could have been a lot farther, but um, yeah, we we ran second to him. Yeah, there was it was an eight horse race and no one scratched. You couldn't fill a four other than going yeah. two turns on the dirt this these days, if you, if you had a half a million dollar purse, and um, and cigar in <laughs> it, no one scratched. Seven horses lined up against them. Now you couldn't get seven horses to run against them in a in a stake race. No, but I, I think. I know I did. I underestimated him because you know what, what the funny thing about Cigar was? He started out, he broke his maiden on the dirt, and then they put him on the turf after that. Yeah. And didn't try him on the dirt again, um, you know, like a year and a half later after he broke his maiden. They kept running him on the turf, and Mott had him. He got sent to New York, and, and Mott, um, he ran him on the turf several times. And I guess out of desperation, they, they moved him to the dirt. And I, I wasn't a big believer in the beginning. And honestly, I thought Holy Bull was going to dust him. So when that whole scenario came down, um, you know, Holy Bull versus Cigar, I, I, I was on Holy Bull's side. And when he broke down, like everything just kind of, uh, I, don't, I don't remember anything about that race. I mean, I, don't, I do not remember Cigar. I remember him running down the backside, and that's it. Yeah, like I stopped I, you got watching the, same, the race. You have the same memory as I do. Yeah, I stopped watching the race, and I wasn't a believer in Cigar for a couple starts because I said, you know, Holy Bull would have beat him, and you know he won that allowance race, and yeah, the Naira Mile was big, but maybe he's just a one-turn horse, and but then he kept winning, and <laughs> it got to be pretty apparent, man. He's he's pretty good. <laughs> yeah, but um. Yeah, I don't think we'll see horses like that anymore. And and that 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 makes me sad because that's not citation, man. That's not uh even when I was a kid, John Henry, like John Henry was my favorite horse. And yeah. he would run some in the summertime three times a month. I mean, it was crazy. Uh dirt didn't matter, turf. And he always tried. He was always right there. 
And I know we're never going to see that again. We're never going to see a horse like him that makes, what do you make, 90 starts, won 40 races, won grade ones on the dirt, on the turf, going, you know, a mile, going a mile three quarters. Um, I, I realized that that, I mean, he was a unique horse in, in itself, but um, like we don't even see cigars anymore. And that's, it's uh and it just doesn't seem that long ago. I know it is. I mean, when you go, it's 2020 and we're talking about 1990s, but it, it does seem like things went from horses that had a lot of stamina as far as ability to race to. And I think we easily go, oh, it's the breeding. It's how we're breeding horses. And, you know, and I, I guess it is, but it just seems like it changed pretty quickly. Yeah, it, it's, there's, so many different factors i think that i think the way horses are bred obviously people are breeding paper on paper they're they're not and and of course i'm I'm painting with broad strokes here but i think a lot of people are doing that not everyone obviously um i don't think people are, are is willing to run what they can't sell um i think that the way horses are raised uh, because they've become so valuable as bloodstock that people don't want to risk them getting hurt. And as such, they, they baby them. And I, I believe that has uh, plays a role. And of course, that's kind of a nebulous thing, but you can't get a horse's maturity time back like once it's passed. Um, you know, the, the horse is only going to be 18 months old one time they're you know they're only going to be uh developed from from a to b to c one time um there was a guy uh larry best a couple years ago he had a real real fast horse he was just getting into business he had a horse i can't think of the horse's name but he won by he won first time out by the length of stretch he came he ran him back um and he won again he just he just blasted a field and the Hollywood juvenile. Uh, so you had like two huge figure races, two blowout wins. And he turned, he, he wanted to turn him out. He just wanted to turn him out. And his thought process was that you could slow down his, his maturity. <laughs> um, and I, I, I would like totally disagreed with what they were doing. And I remember arguing people and I, I, I remember telling them, listen, a horse's development comes and goes. You cannot control it. Yeah, they they tell you when they're they you need to let up. You know, they tell you when it's time to take a break. Yeah, and and his uh, his theory was that they were going to turn the horse out, and he would he would develop, um, you know, in a field. But that's not how racehorses develop. They develop through racing. And when he came back as a three-year-old, he, he just, I think he couldn't stay sound. Uh, I remember Jimmy Cruz, an old, old-time harness guy. Um, great, you know, legendary trainer on the harness side. I remember him telling me one time about two-year-olds. He says, never turn a two-year-old out that's not injured. If they're injured, they're injured. There's nothing you can do. But he goes, turning a sound two-year-old out, he goes, they're going to get on that grass, they're going to eat it, and they're going to like it. And they're not going to get, you know, the proper foundation because instead of being a um, you know a racing mode they're going to be in a, a field mode 
I never did forget that. And, and I think that a lot of times we get bombarded. Uh, and I say we as though you and I are you know, still training. But um, you hear a lot of people talk about, uh, uh, you know, just send them to the farm. Just give them time off. And I think that it's so... Um, you can't compare humans to horses in, in, in physically in most ways. But, you know, you give the equivalents. Like every time you got a headache, you don't skip work and lay on the couch all day until you're better. You know, you, you take uh, you take your your med and you go on. And I think a lot of times people don't understand that you can't just stop on a horse every time anything goes wrong. That a lot of times you just need to work through things. And starting over with the horse is a lot of times harder than just working through something because you're starting from from you know square one and it's just a to me it's just a lack of of understanding of what training actually is you're conditioning horses and when you're dealing with horses that have conformational issues that are causing the issues because in my case i got a lot of horses in my career that just weren't that well made. If you saw a horse in my barn that was really well bred, you can guarantee they're crooked. <laughs> yeah, they, they weren't. If if they had a, a really good pedigree, um, they were probably there was something wrong with them. Um, and that's just the way it goes. So you know, you take a horse who's crooked, and, and a lot of times they'll run through it. I mean, you stand in in a, in a paddock for stake races, and you watch horses after horse after horse come in, and you will not see very many perfect horses. You'll see horses that uh, turn out, turn in, offset, this, that, and the other. But those are the ones that can run through their issues. And there's not that many, obviously. <laughs> we don't see um, that many really top horses that are able to do that. Yeah, and, and to be honest, of- a lot of the a lot of the crooked horses, you know, they're they're going to get a, a minor injury way before they go break a leg off. They're they're going to pop a splint. They're going right. to they're going to and, and so you, you you that's when you you know you back down on them. You do whatever is needed from a vet standpoint, and that's when you give them the break. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the thing, and, and um, I guess the point is that if my horse is, has filling in his knees because he's off his knees well i can turn him out but when he comes back in and we go back to that same point that's going to happen again because it's a confirmational issue it's it the pressure is getting sent through his knees um not at, at a perfectly level way and and a lot of times you just work like i said you work through it. it's like if you went to the gym and you worked out the next day you're sore well, if you don't work out again for two more weeks, the next, the first time you work out again, the next Very day you're again. going to be super yeah. sore. And, and I think that's the thing that people don't understand is that rest is, is not the answer for every horse's problem. It's the answer to actually very few of their problems. Yeah, and, John, and Chuck, there's a lot of, you just see this, you know, and we did it. I mean, on the racetrack, you see somebody do something, you think it's a good eye, and you start doing it. And so I, I you know, I feel like a lot of the horses these days that 
that everybody now, you know, sees what Flightline has done. And, and it's way before Flightline, but the, the real light racing of horses, well, that's the way to do it. Owners get it in their minds. Trainers, you know, do it. And so now everybody starts doing that same thing. And it's, and, and I may be wrong here with Rich Strike, but I could have sworn when I saw Rich Strike, his PPs before the Derby, he had run five or six times. And again, maybe I'm totally wrong, but he wins the Derby and now let's, let's run them ever so often. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing how everybody just follows everybody else, whether it's the right thing to do, it, it's, it's the new way to do it. Yeah, it, it's um, it's a copycat business for sure. Yeah, but a lot of times you're copying. Um, you're talking about feed. <laughs> this was uh, when, during my brief run as a feed man, and I had a pretty good feed. It was from Canada. It was uh, reasonably priced, good stuff. And the guy was telling me, "Oh, well, I feed always." I said, "Okay, always good feed." So I said, why did you choose Hollies? That's a Chad Brown piece. I said, you know, Chad's a good trainer, but um, you don't really think that his horses are, are doing well because that's the fee they get, right? Yeah. Like, you know, when, when they come over from Europe and they got those little G1s next to their name, the, 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 he could probably feed them um, chicken feed and they're going to do pretty good. It's, yeah. oh, you know, that's, that's the go. Well, uh, you know, I wore Converse Pro, you know, when when I was in uh, grade school, but it didn't turn me into Dr. J. No, it didn't give me three or four inches of vertical I needed. <laughs> no, um, but no, it's it's so funny, and like you said, it's 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 everybody. All of a sudden, everything needs to be spaced, um, space, space, space. I, I don't. I remember three weeks. Condition books were based upon three week increments because. That is when everybody wanted to run their horse back in three weeks. Now it's, you know, three weeks. Oh, my God, that's too quick. Maybe it is too quick for some horses, but other horses, especially heavier horses, would probably thrive on on racing more. Yeah. You don't have to train them as hard. But but that is probably something that's not going to change. And and I think that horse of... uh, that Lynn Norm Cash guy, I think that horse that he just run on one is like 14th race today at Belterra. What's up track that's open now? Uh, Mahoney Valley. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that horse won again today. Uh, win number 14 on the year. He might, <laughs> he might deserve a break. <laughs> A little time off might not hurt that one, but yeah, um, yeah, it's it's just a eh, it's a different way of, of looking at things. I thought it was interesting today that the FTC uh, drop kicked the Heiser rules, basically saying, "Listen, we can't pass these rules. We're, we're a national organization here, and uh, we can't be passing rules that only might be in effect for ten days." So, uh, no. Uh, also, the same day today. A letter was made public, sent by nine attorney generals of nine different states to uh, Mr. McConnell, telling him that they were vehemently against him 
passing a uh, HISA fix attached onto some other bill. And I thought one of the real telling quotes was, this is why it's in the trouble that it got in was because there wasn't debate about it and there wasn't, uh, it, w- it was just jammed through on something else. And this is why we're in the place we're in now. So I, yeah, I don't I'm... exactly know what's yeah. going to happen, but it sounds like it's in trouble. And uh, I mean, my, I've been pretty clear about this. I think that the, the theme of Haiza is fine, but I think the, the practical uh, application has been horrific. And I think that there's people on the boards that absolutely should not be on those boards. And I think that, um, you know, I, I was appalled at the, the new style of drug regulation um, that they're trying to get a detection level, which just throws open the gates to more positives for absolutely um, useful medications that every horse, every equine discipline of every sort uses because horses have lots of issues and, and mostly they're tiny, minimum, you know, small issues, but to just not treat anything because you live in fear because you have no idea what the guidelines are because they've taken everything away just seems like, like lunacy. Um, and, and how we can sit here, how, how those people at the university of Arizona symposium last week got up on those platforms and not a single person said, you know what we really need to do with HISA? We need to come together as an industry. But we also need to include everyone in these talks because the people that are in charge now are incapable of putting together proper regulations. And yeah, some of it yeah, is I mean, because, you know, by design. But this was supposed to be setting uniform rules, not new rules. Well, and this is what happens when you can't come together as an industry and police yourselves. You get HISA. You get everything you just said. You get people that are sitting on boards or committees or whatever it is that come up with these rules that don't understand the practicality. And there's been cheating forever. There was cheating when I was on the racetrack. There's cheating now. Cheating goes on every day. Because there's always cheaters. We see it everywhere. We see it in, you know, in other sports. But you need boots on the ground and you need real information from people in the industry that know how to fix things. And it's not easy. But you have to have everybody together, everybody on the same page, and everybody has to understand it's for the good of racing, the integrity of racing. Again, we've already talked many times and you talk all the time, you know, on your podcast, you do an eloquent, great job, all the issues that racing is facing today. And there are a lot, but it just shows you when you can't come together as an industry and do it on your own, what other things can you affect? You're right. I just, uh, it just beyond me how, there hasn't been an olive branch given and that horseman's committee that they chose. That's not an olive branch. That, that that's actually pandering. 
oh, we're going to have a group to represent you, but we're going to pick the people. <laughs> yeah, and, and I'm that's sure like, you all have covered like this. I, I'm, I'm sometimes aren't able to listen as much to your podcast, but I'm sure you've covered this. But whenever a rule comes out that even somebody that's not very intelligent can find a hole in it, like I'm going to, if you hit a horse more than seven times, and then go, okay, you're a jockey. And I know y'all have already said this, but just you can talk through how it's completely idiotic, that rule. But you're in a race, you're on a horse, you're not, you don't have a counter in your hand. And so just right there, this shows you, you know, that it just a problem just like that says, look, we, 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 we don't know how to do this. We need help. We're focusing on the wrong thing. We got to focus on cheaters and how to catch cheaters. Let's talk to the trainers. Let's talk to industry leaders and talk through that. So pre-race testing or what do they call it? They don't call it pre-race testing. What is it? Out of competition. Thank you. Out of competition testing. I keep saying boots on the ground. There's... there's no better people that talk about what's happening on the backside than people on the backside. They know who's cheating. I was on the racetrack. I heard it. I heard the rumors. All you got to do is tell somebody and go, that person's supposedly doing that. Go check it out. Just go drop in. Go follow the vet. It's not that hard. It really isn't. You know, it's it's so funny you say that because that's something I've said before. Like, these trainers, they're, they're not like super criminals. Um like Navarro and, and Jason Service, they didn't send him to the Supermax in Colorado, you know, to put him in the in the in the, the cell next to the Unabomber. You know, these these if if there's a deterrent, then you can get a long ways from uh, things like you said, boots on the ground, people watching the we know where the horses are. Twenty four hours a day, we know where they are. They're not going and and you know huddling up when, when we leave, we go home and, and sneaking into the tack room and, 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 and shooting themselves up like they're heroin addicts. You know, it has to get into the horse somehow. We know where the horses are. So why is this that difficult? It's frustrating. Yeah, and some of it's smoke and mirrors. You know, I hear, oh, you know, they got security. Well, anybody who's been to security on the backside, <laughs> thank you. You're a reason you're laughing. There's a reason my buddies would go to Saratoga every year and we would have no ID. We would have no racetrack badge and we could go anywhere we wanted because we bullshitted whatever we wanted to do. Oh yeah. Yeah. I'm getting my license. I'll be back. Blah, blah, you know, you just, so, you know, racetrack security has no idea what is happening with the horse. Well, they're, 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 un, they're untrained personnel. Yeah, you know, I mean, that, and that's what it really comes down to is is they're untrained. Um, but it sounds good. Their security, twenty four hour security, nothing can happen there. Sure, okay. The guy in the uniform. Yeah. No. No, I, I think uh, that's that's you know that's it, and I think you know the great theme that you're you're bringing to the show tonight is that uh, you have been out of the business since uh, what year? Nineteen ninety nine, and. A lot of your experiences are the same thing that's still going, still happening now, and it's the same stuff that people talked about, and it's not 
changed. And, and I think the, like, I don't want to rant on this every week, but I, I think that's the one frustration that I feel is like, man, we've been through this before. It, it was, there was a thread on Twitter the other day about, um, you know, getting people to the track and, and I'm a huge proponent that, uh, of, of doing things a lot different than they've done it. But people are like, well, we'll have beer gardens and this. I said, guys, this at concerts, this stuff has been done. We've done, we did this in the nineties. Yeah. It didn't work back then. It won't work now because you want people to, to come to see the business, uh, to see racing and, and to become, um, attached to it. And you have, it takes a special, um, demographic to do that. It's, it's, it's a, it's a complicated game, horse racing. If you want to become a, a, a better, if you want to wager, if you want to handicap, well, that is a mentality that's not found among the masses. It, it's, it's a specialty. Number one, you got to be relatively smart. So we all think we're nuts that, that try to beat the races all the time. But in the end, you have to have the capabilities of deduction, of, of being able to understand mathematics and, and things like that. Um, and you have to have uh, a mentality that of, of risk taking and just, you know, marketing to the masses. We're not marketing soda. You know, we're not trying to, to sell um, hamburgers or pizza or, or, or even slot machines. It's a totally different mentality. My ex-wife, uh, she, she was a, a, a rider and she was, she's a, she was a kamikaze. She's a risk-taking person. But she didn't have the patience to handicap a race. And she was a freaking jockey. Not that she would have known what the hell she was looking at anyways. But you put a slot machine, she'll sit there for three hours and do it. Yeah. So if you spent 10 cents on her trying to make her a, a, a racing, handicapping, betting person, it's never going to happen. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great, that's a great point, Chuck. It's a, it's a special person that wants to handicap and spend the time needed to gamble on horses. And, and so, so much of what we do, we market to, uh, and I'm involved in this game of silks thing. And um, I'm an unabashed supporter of it because I think that I've seen a lot of what good it can do for the industry, not just, um, as, as a game, as a fantasy horse racing type of game, but the um, the interaction that, that we've had so far is with an entirely different demographic than racing. It's almost like a it's a, a group of people that, that we've missed, that we didn't hit 20, 30 somethings that are interested in things like um, you know web 3. Uh, the metaverse, the, the they were they were people that were into crypto. They they were people who were into uh, things that my generation, our generation, um, it, 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 we we're past it. You know, we, we kind of have to back up and, and and check it out. But they like city of of racing. They enjoy, and I think that's why fans. a lot of like pick fives and pick sixes and rainbow sixes have become so popular because they're so difficult. It's a challenge to handicap that many races, and so again, to the to the to to who you're talking about, I think that's another reason 
those were so popular. You know, I'm yeah. like, I mean, let me try to pick one. You know, I try to put together a pick five ticket. Just ain't me. Not that I've never played one, but you know, the success rate of me playing a pick five or a pick six is nil. Yeah, I hear you. Um, <laughs> listen, man, I, I've taken up plenty of your time tonight, and I do appreciate you pinch hitting for oh, Barry. Thanks um, for having me on. It was a pleasure. I'm, I'm uh, thrilled to have you on, and uh, hope I didn't hope... take the show. Hope I didn't take the show five steps back because you know, man, you, you moved this up. Yeah, you, you, you moved this up in the Neil Howard demographic. I like Neil, Neil Howard was one of my favorite people. When I started training, um, he came to me one day in Kentucky, and he, had, you know, he had known me from working for other trainers. And, uh, he said in the most sincere fashion, "Listen, if there's anything you need ever, anything, like don't hesitate." And and he meant it. And uh, we still I, I never, talk. You know, we still talk it. quite a bit. Um... I met, you know, Nikki, you know, on the racetrack. She worked for John Forbes. That's where I met my wife. Um, and he was our best man. I mean, it was not just a mentor and, a, you know, a, somebody who I luck, looked up to, but he was also just a great friend. We still talk ever so often. But, uh, yeah, he was my best man. Great, great guy. Yeah, he really was. And, and speaking of Nikki, your wife, who, who went to uh, finest institute of higher learning in, yep. in America – University of Arizona. Uh, she used to play pickup basketball with us. Oh Saratoga. yeah. And Elliot Walden of Windstar one time almost decapitated her. Yeah, separated her shoulder yeah. almost. I yeah, think and- I think I didn't take her to the emergency room. I think she powered through it. He set a screen <laughs> yeah. against my wife. And hopefully everybody has seen Elliot Walden. He's not yeah. any smaller than he was back then. No, it it was it was like. Uh, it, it was like, it was like an NFL lineman uh, setting a pick on the, the kicker, and uh, and then he couldn't believe that we called the foul on him. I said, "Ellie, you, you yeah. almost maimed her." Yeah, he never. He, yeah. that's unbelievable. And at the time she worked for John Forbes again, another name I'll throw out. They had tail of the cat, so that was pretty exciting times. Yeah, yeah, I remember he. Uh, I remember we he broke Kelly Kip's track record at uh, Saratoga for six and a half. Kelly Kip had broke the track record, and then I think like two weeks later, uh, Taylor Cap rebroke it. I know we got to wrap it up, but you you got to tell me one thing I need to know. Yes. Again, huge Alan Jerkins fan. Before, even before, you know, I I think I started working for Neil, but one of the horses that just I fell in love with, and don't tell, I just thought of the name, Mayor. Ran the Breeders' Cup out in California. Didn't rank good in the distaff. Sky Beauty. Sky Beauty. Yeah. Absolutely loved her. What What happened in the Breeders' Cup? Why did she not? The one. Is there any story was, there? Um, she She just. She was over the top. You know, the one year, and, and I can't recall which one it was. It was Kentucky or California, but it all kind of blends in. Um, she had tendons at Philly, believe it or not. Um, but uh, God, I was a huge fan of her when she carried 130 pounds that summer at Belmont and she beat a couple really good, she beat a Maris Shugs and, and a Philly of uh, um, Paul Mellon, the 
Mac Millers. I can't think of the names of them. But she carried 130, and that race really knocked her out. Like, she won that day, but 130 pounds for, for a mare in the heat yeah. of the summer um, against, you know, tough, tough horses. And she never really got it. She wasn't as good after that the, the rest of the year. Uh, she just wasn't. I mean, it wasn't that she didn't train good for the Breeders' Cup, but she didn't have that same uh, zip. Um, and did you work for Skiffington before uh, Jerkins? Yeah, yeah. Man, you went from one crazy shed row to the next, didn't you? Yeah. I, I, I worked for Nick Zito in between. Speaking of crazy shed rows. I'll never forget. We were up in the clocker stand at Gulfstream, and he had those horses from Mackinville, and they all broke down or weren't doing any good. And he took them away like immediately. Yeah. Do you remember that? Yeah, I had the, I had the misfortune of working for Mister Mackinville. It was uh, I did well, but they still fired me. <laughs> but I just remember that was a tough time because he had. And you know, Nick's got that way about him. You know, it's 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 he's a great guy, but kind of got that whiny, yeah, the, you know, the world's after me. Yes, but that was a very tough time. He he, he definitely was. Uh, he thrived on on the me against the world. He always did. He still does. Except now he doesn't have any horses that can run at all. Um, and I, I feel bad. I feel bad for him because. I've been there. I've had horses that just aren't any good. And that's one of the reasons I quit. Yes. Like I I just got sick of training horses that it just didn't matter what you did. They were not going to win. There was no winning. You'd be at the bottom. You'd, you'd get, you'd get them to the bottom fast because you knew they weren't very good. Um, No. And you, you, and you can't just fire everyone because you, you know, an empty stall can't win any races. Yeah, and a lot of people don't want to hear it too, and that's the thing. We'll try blinkers. We'll try this. We'll try that. We'll try. You you run out of things to try. I remember telling Shug that I said because um, he said why'd you quit? I said Shug, I had horses were so bad that I knew no matter what I did, it wasn't a matter of trying to find um, the. You, you know, you always try to find a key to a horse. You get a horse in, and you try to find what makes this horse tick. How do I get him to perform at his best or her best? You know, what what is it that that uh, they require from me? Do I need to train them harder? Do I need to back off? You know, do they need company? Do they need to be alone? Do they need more vet work? Or, excuse me, gate work. You know, do, do they have something bothering them physically, mentally? How do you you know the how do you get into their head? What is it that they want to do in a race? Do they want to be up with the leaders that they want to be, you know, make one run that they want to run through the bit. I mean, there's so many factors, right. With a, with a, a horse with some talent. Yeah. And I said, when you get the horses that don't have any talent, you go to work every morning, knowing it doesn't matter what you do. You're not going to be successful. And no, maybe I- once in a while, you'll find a field worse of forces that are worse than yours. And you can win a race here or there. I go, but that was the thing is that it just, it, it it's failed to be fun and because it's fun to win. And it, it always was the challenge of trying to like unlock 
that key to a horse and say, I've got it. I've figured it out. This is what this horse wants to be. Um, and it might have been a surface change, too. I mean, when you might have you might have found a horse that maybe they weren't bred for the turf, but hell, they like the turf. That, that happens. Well, um, you know, like you mentioned, it's, it's, you know, you try everything because that's how much you care. You do it all. You pull out all the stops and kind of going back to making generalities. But, you know, I think there's owners out there that think that, you know, everybody's, you know, the trainer, a sea biscuit, you're going to stare at their eyes and you're going to figure out, put a goat with them and you're going to, you know, take a bell out and have them, you know, it, it, that's not how it is. It's, no. it's quality horses make good trainers. They do. They're forever, and it will always be that. This is nothing against Todd Pletcher, um, Chad Brown, Steve Asmussen. They obviously are great what they do, but they don't have any secret sauce. It's the horse. Yeah, no doubt. And I've been around plenty of, and I probably shouldn't use this term, but plenty of gyps that – didn't look like they knew what which way end was up, and they would beat us in stake races and allowance races all day long because it was the horse. Now, you can mess a horse up. Yes, you can. You can do that. Yeah, I mean, no doubt that you, we've, we've seen it happen. Um, we've seen good horses ruined. It, that, that does happen a lot. I mean, it's not as though they're not good trainers and bad trainers because there are in any profession. But, but what happened in racing was that a very, very select few trainers became uh, virtually the only ones that people thought could train. And a lot of guys who were good trainers, they just stopped getting horses. They stopped getting horses that could compete. And then it reflects on you. I mean, this isn't like an athlete. Like if you're an athlete, you get to a, a, an age where you just physically can't do it anymore. You're, you're a trainer. You're, you're not <laughs> doing the running yourself. If you send me good horses, I'm going to win. Yeah. And that's the thing is, uh, and, and this is something I've said too. The best trainers, the top guys, they always got good horses. Yeah, it's a number even always got good horses. The, yeah. the, the, it's not that they shouldn't have good horses. Of course, they, they, they're successful. They should have good horses. It's just that they have every decent horse and every good owner. And I, when I trained uh, in the beginning, maybe the first 10, 12 years, I trained a lot of B-string horses. I trained for bigger outfits. They would send me the horses that that weren't easy, were tough, that had some mental issues or they were physical you know, had issues that, that needed more care. I couldn't just put them in their program because of whatever reason. And the owners got it, you know, and we had a lot of success doing that. And those were good paying owners that understood the business, um, had no problem paying the bills. But those guys, we lost them all. And the B string horses started going to the top trainer too. And it just wiped out an entire middle class of trainers because um, you know, if, if, if an owner's got 50 horses, well, out of those 50, and I don't care how well-bred they are, out of those 50, 25 of them probably don't need to be somewhere where it costs $125 a day, dollars a day to train because they're never going to get to that level because they just have too many issues or they have too many problems or, or they're just you know not going to make it because 
that's just how it is. I mean, we talk about into mischief, how great he's done. He gets like 91% non-stake winners. Yes. So it's not like, oh, this horse is by this horse, out of this horse. So oh, they're guaranteed something. They're guaranteed nothing. But you took away good owners um, from solid trainers and you starved them to death. And then they were forced to take lesser horses who they, they couldn't have even a reasonable win rate with. And then everybody, you know, used that against them. And it's, it's just, um, you know, it, it just makes me shake my head because it's bad for everyone ultimately, including the big trainers, because they've got to have someone to run against. You can't fill high-class races unless you have enough horses spread out amongst other trainers to get those races to fill. And, and I see where California, they're, they're starting to let trainers run three in overnight races, which is kind of like, you know, the, the death knell for racing when you let, uh, when you're willing to have a five horse field and, and, and I'm not talking stakes, I'm talking overnight races. The stakes are a different story. Um, but, you know, when, when we were when made races and allowance races become, you know, uh, you, you, you know, competition is what this game is built upon. The foundation of, of horse racing. And, you know, I mean, back in the in the nineties, you know, when I was on the racetrack, it, it was kind of a no no to to run to have a, you know, two horses in one race and two different owners. You're like, how are we going to explain to the owner if we beat them or vice versa? And now these days, it seems to be just nothing. Like it's no big deal. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I I tell you the the, the greatest. Um, what's the old saying? Uh, the greatest trick the devil ever ever did was convincing people that he wasn't real. I said the the greatest trick that super trainers have is is convincing billionaires to to check their egos. <laughs> you know? Yeah, I I never thought when when we were you know back in the 90s that you could fast forward 20 years that you would be in a situation where you would have sometimes 10 different billionaires on 10% of a, of a horse. I never thought that would happen because no. I, I would say How I, was a billionaire. Do I, I don't want to be partners. I want to a billionaire. I want to do what I want to. Yeah. Even a guy like Mike Rapoli, who's, you know, got to be one of the most difficult people to be partners with and nothing against Mike, but Mike is, you know, a strong-willed guy who ain't afraid to talk, you know, and uh, even though we only see these people in the winter circle, most of the time, most of the issues with all of their horses are, are not, are, are, are not positive things because that's just the nature of the beast. The more horses you have, the more problems you have. But um, like if I was a billionaire, I wouldn't be partners with anybody. No, you know, maybe a friend of mine or something like that, but it wouldn't be just other, you know, random rich people. No, I mean, there's there's little parts of the game that are like fun, like having your own silks on a horse and not having to switch from one race to the next. Doesn't seem like much, but it's something to it. But they've got those people to to bend, and it's um. I still don't know. I, I still find it hard to believe that that, that actually has happened because, you know, um, it's it's almost like us. We we Barry. This was Barry's uh, 
uh, saying, he said that it's, they like playing the game on cheat code, you know, like a video game. Yeah, that's it. So, Great saying. And uh, it's it's the truth. So, anyways, Eric, I do appreciate you giving us so much time, and uh, I hope people uh, enjoyed reminiscing and talking about the, the good old days. And um, I do. Uh, I'm happy uh, happy we're able to get you on. Unfortunately, Barry, everything's okay with Barry. Good. People to worry. Um, but uh, yeah, you know, life gets in the way. And um, next week we were going to have. Uh, it's funny because I schedule things. I can't tell you how many times this last year and a half we've scheduled programs to like, you know, try to be like mainstream. <laughs> yep. And not just babbling. Uh, we were going to have our, our worst of the year awards tonight, but um, we'll push that back to next week. I can't uh, wait for that one. And I, actually, I, what I might do is I might get everybody's opinions and everybody's feedback and put uh, a bunch of the categories on Twitter and Facebook and, and see, uh, um, see what kind of, what kind of feelings people have. Uh, uh, this is some of the categories. And if you have a category, if you can think of a category, um, let me know because uh, we're open and my mind doesn't work as good as it used to be. So I can't, uh, I can't remember some of the stuff that happened earlier in the year, but uh we're going to get a worst of, and then the following week, we're going to do a best of. I'll be listening. Again, you all do a great job. This, you know, there's certain programs out there that, you know, you can't say anything wrong about the horse industry. Unfortunately, I think reality is the best. You all, you do a great job. It doesn't have to be controversial, but when there's things that are controversial, they need to be brought up. They need to be talked about. It's part of making the game better. And there's certain companies out there that don't allow anybody to say anything wrong everything's you know rainbow and unicorns and that's not reality so you all do a great job and I, i'll be listening next week i can't wait for that episode well we're gonna uh we're gonna give a quick rundown here what we're gonna look for if you if you have any ideas any more categories anyone else has any more categories just uh you know send us an email send us a text pop it up on social media but the worst of the the six that we've come up with so far is the worst DQ. Um, there's there's that's gonna there's, be a tough one. There's there's several of those. Uh, this one is real one. I have a I have a favor for this one. But uh, worst ride of the year, um, the worst graded stakes, uh, the worst beaten favorite. Who was the who was the worst beaten favorite out there? Meaning, who was the worst favorite? that went off at two to five or three to five that that got beat. Um, what was the worst beat gambling wise? Um, or I, I guess, you know, anybody, but, uh, uh, you know, there's always sob stories of a guy getting DQ'd out of a $600,000 pick six. So we want to hear that. Yep. Um, Barry, Barry said, what's the worst racing idea? I know that, I know something that's going to get a lot of votes. Yep. That. But uh, if you got any other uh, categories you think might be uh, pertinent or, or you have something to say, just uh, email us at uh, goingacircles at gmail.com or you can hit me up at Cannon Shell on Twitter or you can get Barry, the Urban Handicapper, or you can hit us up at Facebook, though. 
Facebook is kind of like the wild west for horse racing. So we, we dabble in there, but, um, yeah, man, uh, it's, it's that time of the year. We gotta, we gotta look back. So Time to reflect. All right. Well, thank you. And thanks everyone hey. for listening. Uh, appreciate Chuck. Yes, sir. We'll, we'll speak to you next week.